Well, good morning, church. Uh, thank you guys for uh, allowing or coming here uh, this morning to be with us as we um, are continuing a sermon series that we started about a, a month or so ago uh, called God is the Gospel, but specifically are going to turn just ever so slightly um, as we enter into what is known historically in the life of the church as the Advent, which means the coming, and in th- Christian history, has been this season where we have been really focusing on the coming of Jesus. And we felt as the elders that looking at this Advent and and continuing on in this sermon series called God is the Gospel, where we're looking at the different attributes and, and character nature of who God is, that it would be important for us to continue that that theme, because really, when we're talking about the idea of God, we're talking about Him being our hope, we're talking about Him being our joy, we're talking about Him being our love, we're talking about Him being peace, and we are talking about God coming in flesh in the incarnation of our Lord. So we're continuing this series just with a little bit more focus on on looking at the Christmas season and what that means for us. So thank you again for gathering with us here. I appreciate Pastor uh, Justin and Pastor Todd um, over the last two weeks kind of preaching for me, and it just gives me a nice uh, reprieve. It makes me hungry uh, to preach again. I always know when it's time for me to take a little bit of a break uh, because of the weightiness of it, and yet um, when not doing it, it always makes me eager to do it again. And so I appreciate our elders, which are just phenomenal men of God, uh, preaching over the last several weeks. If you have not heard their two sermons, I highly encourage you uh, to listen to those as well. So this morning, we're going to talk about the God who is hope, or the hope of God. Um, How many of you guys remember middle school? For some of you, you got to go way back. For some of you, you're in it. And uh, this week, I was thinking some about middle school, and I've got this awkward picture of myself. This is me in the eighth grade. What you can't tell about that shirt that I'm wearing is it's like, green and like kind of tie-dye-ish looking sort of color. And yes, I did used to have hair, okay? And my eyebrows did go together at that time. And then I learned to shave, all right? Um, But middle school, if you remember, or if you're in it, um, is a season of transition. You're no longer in elementary school, and yet you're no, or you're not in high school yet. Um, I live in a house with two teenagers, or two middle school students. Uh, We have one normal child, and then we have, and still trying to figure out whatever Ava is, um, inside of our house. And um, we have noticed a transition between elementary school and middle school Even in our kids, even Cash being the way that he is, there's some things that he's doing and some curiosities that he had that he used to not have. But you remember the awkwardness of middle school, unless you were the bully, right? But for most of us, it was extremely, extremely awkward to be in that in-between. Middle school is difficult because you are living in this sort of stage where you're no longer really a kid and you're... No, you're not considered an adult. We even consider this age group to be called tweens, whatever that means. Your body is changing. You start to notice um, people of the opposite sex, but you can't really figure out why. Uh, You begin to have acne. Your voice begins to change. One minute, you act like an adult, and that is followed up by a slew of childish behavior. This is really tough on parents. Because you have no idea this alien life form that is now living inside of your house. Okay? It's in between. You don't want to do what third graders are doing. And yet you can't drive. You can't really go out on a date. You can't vote. You can't work a job. You're just there trying to figure out your life. You're thankful for the past. But what are you looking forward to? Something that is coming in the future. You guys have heard stories about me growing up, and I remember being goody-goody and and just thinking, 
Lord Jesus, because I heard lots about the rapture and how I wouldn't be able to buy groceries because of the mark of the beast and all this really scary stuff as an elementary school kid. So by the time I got to middle school, I remember thinking things like, Lord Jesus, just don't blow the trumpet until I get to drive, right? Lord Jesus, don't blow the trumpet until after my honeymoon. I mean, all of this sort of stuff that you're anticipating and looking forward to, because it's not there yet. You're in the awkward in-between. You're living in the tension of where you once were and where you hope to one day be. You know, for those of us who are believers, this side of the cross, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we are somewhat living as the church, as this awkward middle school group of people. We're kind of had these moments in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus where it appears to be mature and you can see maturity in those around us and then in the next moment see grown adults, immature in their faith, make childish decisions within the church. We are after the resurrection and yet the return of Jesus has not come yet. All right, maybe that's why we have some empty seats is to clue you in. You missed it, all right? We know the Crosbys made it. They're not here, all right? The rest of us, I guess, let's just hope there's a second chance out there for us. But as we know, the rapture or return, if you, whatever you believe in those things, that Jesus is coming back, it has not happened yet. And so it is this awkward stage because Here's the thing, positionally from God, you have been given everything that he is going to give you. You are holy, you are righteous, you are perfect. In the person and work of Jesus, you're positionally before God, standing as holy as you are ever going to be, as perfect as you are ever going to be, you are as loved as you are ever going to be, and yet practically on this planet, let's face it, Man, we're prone to drift. We're prone to wander toward our old selves. We're, we're prone to question. We're prone to, to really struggle because we still feel broken. In the history of Christianity, uh, we like to call this the, the now but not yet blessings of Jesus. That we have them now. That we are living in the kingdom of God now that we are with God now, but not yet. It's a tension. I don't know about you, but boredom always causes a little fellow like me to have problems. Because I will find something to do. And it is usually not good. Okay? I, idle hands are the devil's playground. And for many, before Jesus would come as a baby, wrapped in swallowing clothes and lying in a manger, you have to understand that there are thousands of years of believers having faith in anticipation and waiting. But some become tired of waiting. They become tired of waiting. They drift. They lose focus. They, they lose focus on the character and the nature of who God is. They go wayward. And this is true not only after Jesus comes, but after the death, burial, and resurrection. What is Jesus telling us? Hey, I've got a great work for you to do, but I'm coming again. When we read the New Testament, there's this underlying thread of belief inside the early church that it wasn't going to be long until Jesus was going to come back. I mean, the idea of 2,000 years passing for the early church it was just mesmerizing, mesmerizing. Paul writes these letters to the early church, and on many occasions what's happened is, is they believe that the return of Jesus is going to become so imminent that it's coming so quickly that they've practically sold all their stuff, they quit all their jobs, and they're sitting on the side of the hills just looking up at the clouds, waiting on the return of Jesus. And yet... They die, and he is still not come. There's an interesting book that I read when I was in college called The Last Days Are Here, dot, 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 again. 
You know why? Because every generation since the cross, since the resurrection of Jesus, has believed that it is the last days, that it is the return of Jesus is imminent. And we see this even in our culture. Every few years or every year, somebody comes out with a a new date that Jesus is going to return, and yet he hasn't. We live in this tension. We tell people Jesus is coming back. We live in this awkward stage of not really knowing what to do or, 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 or how to live. And let's, let's face it, it is much easier to say that, man, we are looking forward to this idea of Jesus returning and, and those who are the, the true church. We, um, Christmas reminds us to look back at a baby in a manger, but I want you to know that Christmas is also a reminder to us modern-day present believers to look forward to the return of Jesus and to not lose hope. We look forward to Jesus coming back and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the restoration of all things. Christmas is a reminder of this return of Jesus. And as our first, our, our legacy of Christian history, as they anticipated the Messiah coming, we too are in the similar stage anticipating the Messiah coming again. But if we were honest this morning, Man, that's a whole lot easier to talk about anticipation than it is to believe it in the midst of a chaotic season, in the midst of a chaotic life, isn't it? It seems like it would be much easier for us to just go about our daily business, to not be concerned about who God is or His character or His nature or His Mission And yet, Christmas reminds us, look back, but look forward with eager expectation. Come thy long-expected Savior. This has been one of the marks of us as believers, is to encourage each other to trust God, to not lose patience, to not lose hope. When we look at this idea this morning of of what is hope, a few definitions for you. I want to make sure that I clarify this morning that there's a difference between what is known as worldly hope and biblical godly hope. Worldly hope is this, is to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or want something to be true. This is conjured up within you. Man, you really hope that this is going to take place. We use this in our sentences all the time. I hope I get a promotion. I hope if you're Adam York, I hope Alabama gets into the college playoffs now. I hope I get blank for Christmas. These are all a cherished Desire. It's an anticipation. It is a belief and hope, a desire for the uncertainty. And yet, when we talk about what the idea of biblical hope is, is that the biblical hope is very different from that. One of the key scriptures, I think, in describing what biblical hope is, is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We often focus on this verse when we look at the idea of faith, but it says this Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So we want a good idea of what faith is. If we want a good idea of what hope is, biblical hope, it is this idea that that there is this assurance in something, that there is something out there that God has decreed, that God has promised, that we can know for certain is going to happen. It has to happen. It's not simply a desire. It is not a a wish list, hoping I get this. No, it is a declaration of assurance. I know, this is what the old preachers used to say, beyond the shadow of a doubt, (laughs) all right, that this is going to happen. We know it's going to happen, but how can we be sure of this? I love this idea of biblical hope is supernatural. 
It's not wishful thinking. It's, it, it's an assurance. It is going to happen. John Pastor, Pastor John Piper, author, etc., says biblical hope is, is not uncertain desire. It is confident expectation. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines our blessed hope as this. Trustful expectation. Particularly in reference to the fulfillment of God's promises. Biblical hope is the anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. More specifically, hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. This contrast to the world's definition of hope as a feeling that what is wanted will happen Understand in this way, hope can denote either a baseless optimism or a vague yearning uh, after an unattainable good. If hope is to be genuine hope, however, it must be founded on something or someone which affords reasonable grounds for confidence in its fulfillment. The Bible bases its hope on God and His saving acts. We've been quoting A.W. Tozer quite a bit inside of this sermon series. Listen what Tozer says about this. Hope is a word which um, has taken on a new and deeper meaning for us because the Savior took it out of, into his mouth. Loving him and obeying him, we suddenly discover that hope is really the direction taken by the whole Bible. Hope is the music of the whole Bible, the heartbeat, the pulse, the atmosphere of the whole Bible. Hope means a desirable expectation, a pleasurable anticipation. As men know this word, so as we typically understand this word, it often blows up in our faces and, and often cruelly disappoints us as human beings. Hope that is only human will throw us down and, and, and wound us just as pleasurable anticipation often turns to discouragement and sorrow. There is a major difference in how our world hopes for things and how we as believers should hope in knowing that things are going to take place. See, worldly hope is, is filled with disappointment. But biblical hope is filled with eager expectation and joy, as we're going to see over the course of the next few weeks. So how can we know that this biblical uh, hope is true hope? Well, the first thing that you need to get this morning is the source of hope. What is the source of hope? So inside your Bibles, chapter 15 of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is probably my favorite letter inside of all of Scripture. And so Paul has been doing this major discourse, this major theological discourse on, on who is God, this deep theology, who we are in our sin, and then the effect of the cross resurrection, uh, the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and how that has forever transformed us into who we are. At the conclusion of this letter, um, Paul transitions to where he begins talking about the church and how that within the church that we should be putting others above ourselves. That there are freedoms that you and I have, but that we should set them aside for the sake of our brothers and sisters, that we give up these rights. And so you can imagine, because again, we are prone to drift toward wanting to do our own things. Well, if I'm free to do this, then I don't care who it hurts. And yet the scripture is alluding that, man, no, we give up these rights because we love our brothers and sisters, because we love the gospel. We want to edify them, serve them, because Christ is the servant of all. So when we look at this passage, we see inside of what Ms. Cynthia read to us in chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip to verse 13 and then come back um, to these other passages. Inside your Bibles, it says this, May the God of hope, it does not merely say that God gives hope, it says that God is the God of of hope. What type of hope is he talking about? He is not talking about worldly hope, but he is talking about biblical hope. 
Paul ends this letter with this idea, this prayer to this church inside of Rome. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, and we'll talk about those in the next few weeks, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in what? In hope. So God is not only the deliverer of hope, he is not only the one who gives the gift of hope, but in essence, God is hope. It is a part of who he is. It is his character and his nature. It is not merely this philosophical, emotional understanding that he can pass out to people. But no, God is hope himself. We're going to see this when we skip over again to the book of Hebrews. So the first thing that that we need to understand about this idea of the God of hope, the hope of God, it is not just merely a gift, but it is him himself who is our hope. Point number two, hope is fulfilled in God's word. Hope is fulfilled in God's word. How can we have biblical hope? We can trust God's word. Inside of chapter 15, Look down to where it says here at the very beginning of this passage. Paul is having this discourse back and forth about how we should live as believers. In the verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have, tell me church, hope. All right? So God is the source of hope. God is hope in Himself. It is in His character. It is in His nature. And yet it is also in an imputable, that means He's able to give this away. All right, So he is able to give it to us. And so how can we trust the word of God? Well, the Bible tells us that through endurance, through encouragement, the things that were written in the past, so specifically the Old Testament, that those things can be trusted, that God can be trusted, that we can have hope in what God says in his word because he has shown us and illustrated for thousands of years, he told us in the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, There will come one from her seed who will crush the head of the serpent. See, the idea of Jesus coming as the Messiah is told for thousands upon thousands of years that they are told to look forward to the one who is coming. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. From the book of what? Malachi? To Matthew, there's 400 years of silence where God sends no prophet. Where it is dark upon the planet. And then what happens? All of those prophecies that we see foretold in the Old Testament, telling of the one to come, begin to transpire with John the Baptist coming on the scene, with the, the, the Mary being visited by the angels, when Elizabeth is visited by the angels, when Zechariah is visited, and they are told that there is one coming, that the forerunner is coming, that the Old Testament told about, but also that Messiah would come soon after that, declaring that the the kingdom of God is at hand, and to repent. And immediately inside the New Testament, what do we begin to see transfold? We begin to see the promises inside the Old Testament are the promises that are kept inside the New Testament. This is why we can have hope. We can trust who God is because when God declares something, when God promises something, it will come to pass. This is the mark of the Old Testament. God making promises to his people. Inside the New Testament, what do we see? These promises being fulfilled. Not all of them yet. So what do we do about those who have not been fulfilled yet? We actively wait. With expectation, just like our brothers and sisters who by faith believed in the coming Messiah did. Even 
in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of great darkness. We have hope because we know that His promises will be kept. And also, that this is who God is. It is hard to endure, isn't it? We can easily be discouraged. We are people prone to discouragement. And yet, the Bible tells us to look to God to look to He is. To Have you forgotten my promises? Have you forgotten my covenant? And we see this further. Um, Pastor Justin read it earlier. So in your Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews. Inside the book of Hebrews, we have this kind of, this kind of hall of faith. We don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But there's this powerful statement inside of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 6 specifically, that we're going to look at um, within this idea that hope is fulfilled in God's Word. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, it says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so that is to overlook your work and, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Verse 11, And we desire each of you, to show the same earnestness that the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. See, that is the, a description not only of these first believers, but brothers and sisters, that is a description for many of us as well. That the Bible tells us that we need to show this same earnestness, that we need to be eagerly waiting, that we're not just sitting on a hillside waiting for Jesus to return, or this mentality that, man, I've got my fire insurance, or I'm good with Jesus. So what's going on the world doesn't really have any effect on me. But no, we are eagerly waiting and participating in God's mission while simultaneously looking to the heavens, eagerly waiting on His return. We see inside of this, this happening that we can add full assurance in that hope. Why? Because what God promises in His Word, it will happen. We can have assurance. We can have certainty. We should not become sluggish. I was involved in a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. You've heard my story if you've been around here long enough. Um, I'm practically a crusade baby. And uh, I, I cannot tell you how many students that I was in crusade with that are no longer walking with the Lord. Many of them are unbelievers. Now, is that a slight against crusade? I don't think so. I mean, it's a disciple. I mean, when build sin, I still got all the, the, the I've drank the Kool-Aid, okay? Um, in, inside of this organization is phenomenal. Since the mid-1950s, it has been a leading missionary organization sharing the gospel all over the world. They are into making disciples, and yet many of the people that I went on mission trips with, many of the students that I was in Bible study, with. Many of the, the students who, who uh, went to church with today as a 39-year-old are no longer walking with Jesus, and many of them are atheists, and we'll tell you that. Why? Man, because we're bent toward becoming sluggish. So we have cultural Christianity because Many of those people were claiming it, even as college students. The reality is, is they did not know Jesus. See, we're to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. We are not saved by works, brothers and sisters, and yet true faith does work. It, it works eagerly. Hoping that today is the day that Jesus, you can imagine that these early, as Mary, even as this teenager, um, students, as this young teenager is anticipating, she's been told from her parents that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, and all they had to hope on to was not what they were seeing with their own eyes, but it was a faith in something that they had not seen, but they knew it to be true. 
Is it true of us? Keep going here. This gets really cool, I think. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I mean, think about it. When we really want to make sure, if I tell Jonathan here, my friend, man, dude, dude, no, I promise, right? I can't just tell, you know, Jonathan that, you know, I, I, I can't just tell him a statement anymore. We've created this culture where we have to one-up it. I can't just give him my word and say, man, dude, like this, 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 and this. But if I really want him to know that I'm being honest, what do I say? Man, I promise. And if you're really wanting to stretch it, what do you say? I swear. I grew up in a, in a house where, man, don't say you swear. That's a bad word. You go to hell for that. I mean, um, this idea of, and there's these songs, you remember, I swear. Back to the late 90s right there. Slow jams. All right? But what do you do? We'll watch these reality TV shows, and these people are all lying to each other, but they'll look at each other, and they'll say things like, man, I promise. I, I swear on my mom and dad. I swear on their graves. I swear on my children. I, 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 and the ultimate, right, is if you say you swear to God. Who does God swear to? There's no one higher than He is. He can't convince you. He can't say, well, I swear on the planets. Well, I made those planets. Well, I, 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 I swear on my children. Well, I, I made those children. God can only, um, uh, you know, illustrate and, and give, He's the great I Am. And he, He's saying to them, if, if they're going to get this, if they're going to understand, the only person I can say is, is, look at verse 14, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. God can only um, uh, you know, reflect himself. He can only reflect his character. He can only reflect his nature. He is who he is. He is the penultimate. He is the everlasting God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the Prince of Peace, King of Kings. All of those things that we have been talking about over the last several months, God is that and infinitely more and is going to spend an infinite amount of eternities revealing who he is to us. But we can guarantee this, that when God, the biblical God, declares something, promises something, makes an oath, makes a covenant, then one thing for sure is it is going to happen. So Abraham looks at a wrinkly old man and a wrinkly old woman. Says, you're going to have a kid. What's Sarah do? She laughs, which is what Isaac's name means. Laughter. All right? I'm sure my parents had a similar situation. As my mom is pregnant with my sister, and my grandmother shows up at their house and says, we're going to have a baby too. I got an aunt that is a year older than me. Okay? My grandmother and mama are pregnant at the same time. That is weird. That is strange. Double that. And you've got Abraham and Sarah. I'd be laughing too. And yet what happens? Hey, Abraham, go outside, bro. See all those stars? I'd be the dummy out there if I was Abraham going, one. Of course, I need those beads on the slider because I'm not smart. So I'd be like, one. And then I'd get frustrated. I'd have to start over. But Abraham, you see all those stars? You're going to have more kids than all those stars. You and I are here because that promise was a promise made and it was a promise kept. Why? You see, you, you and I will keep promises until something better comes along for us. Marriage is an illustration of that. It's people breaking promises every day, breaking a vow every day. But God does not break His promise. God does not break His vow. Why? For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is the final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. All right, you guys need me to promise? You guys need me to make a covenant? You needed me to swear where I swear by myself. Why? Because I have perfect character. I have perfect purpose. I will guarantee this oath. So in verse 18, so that two unchangeable things in which the impossible for God is to lie. Is there things God cannot do? Yes. God cannot go against his character and his nature. If he does, then he is no longer God. God makes a promise. He declares something is going to happen. We can put our hope into that. Why? Because God cannot lie. We who have fled for the refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, a, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. All right? I mean, you need to. Pinterest that, Facebook status, make an embroidery, hang it in your house. We have this as a sure, this is going to happen, and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who is this hope? It is Jesus. When Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We, brothers and sisters then, because God is hope, because God is then the source of hope, meaning that he can give that to us, we can trust his word and his promises. Why? Because we are constantly seeing what he has declared coming true. We know it. But also that hope is incarnated. Jesus is our blessed hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. See, brothers and sisters, our hope is based on these promises from God. Why? So therefore, brothers and sisters, what we must do is this. We must cling ever so tightly to God's word. The time, as we often have said it here at Mission, the time of biblical ignorance is over. If you're really struggling, I'm a person that's, again, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to discouragement. I'm prone to depression. I'm prone to anxiety. And you know what? And whenever I feel those things coming on me, and it is an often an unbearable weight, there is usually a direct reflection of those feelings and emotions and those weightiness connected to of a lack of pressing into God, His character, and trusting His promises. Even on my way to church here this morning to worship with you, I, mean, I was getting all, all worked up, all worked up. I've got this worldly hope that something is going to happen today. Something, anticipation. I've got this worldly hope. And immediately I shut off my radio and I just, I don't hear God, but I just sense God with me in my Jeep just driving here and here. I just... I'm inclined to feel him speaking to me and sharing with me. Here's the deal. You have, um, uh, you know, you're, you're really good at this worldly hope thing, but what you hope is not resting in me. Not resting in me. Man, if I can tell you anything, and over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be unveiling something to you as Mission Church something that we're going to do in the beginning of the year in regards to God's Word and what we want to do as a church and the importance of you and I being in God's Word. Brothers and sisters, many of us do not know the God whom I'm speaking of or the God that we've spoken of over the last several weeks. We do not know how to handle the stresses and the difficulties of life. We do not know how to handle what may be coming in our future. And a lot of that is a reflection of us not knowing and trusting God's Word. We need to get that Jesus is the incarnated hope of God. It is hope personified. 
In the book of Titus, Paul writes to this young pastor, this young elder of his, this young Padawan, this young disciple um, that he is making inside of this young man, Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, already Paul is telling this young church, he's telling this young elder that we are waiting, that there's a life to live inside this passage, that there are things that we should not be participating in, and yet there's this eager waiting on a blessed hope. And notice, this waiting on a blessed hope is not waiting on getting your driver's license, teenagers. It is not waiting on getting married, single people. It is, it is not waiting on getting a, a college degree. It is not waiting on getting a job promotion. It is not waiting on getting children. It is not waiting on retirement to finally start living. That is not what it says. It says a blessed hour, blessed hope. And what is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. See, hope is incarnated, and his name is Jesus. We, I think, because I love Christmas, don't you? I mean, if you take, I know, don't take Christ out of Christmas. Well, if we just had Mass, it would still be awesome if this is what we did. Let's all face it. What makes it real and makes it ultimate is the Christ. I get that. But I, I grew up with a, my, a, my mom about Halloween, she had this yellow jam box. You guys remember jam boxes? It was like a huge brick of a radio player. This is cassette. Okay, draw a picture for them later. Google it. It's called a cassette. I know there's eight track and records before that, but cassette tape. My dad went on Christmas Eve, like right before he was supposed to open presents to go get her a bunch of gifts and goes, ah, I think I'll get her a radio. Showed up with this big block of cheese. And it used to sit on the onion box. Remember when everybody had those? It was like scribed in as a box where you put your potatoes. It usually said taters or onions on it. Anybody else grew up in the South? All right, thank you. Nebo, I don't know about that. All right. My mom, about October, put in a cassette tape every night. We would go to bed to it. Bing Crosby Christmas. There is no other Christmas music, I just want you to know. All right? I hope that brother knew Jesus. I hope he's in heaven. All right? Bing Crosby, every night, white Christmas. Year-round, Ava and I can be found inside of our, Chris, our, our, our kitchen singing white Christmas as we dance inside the kitchen. I love Bing Crosby. I love Christmas music. My wife has had our... Christmas tree up for three weeks. Okay? Three weeks. We love Christmas. But a lot of times we can get caught up in this idea of the first Christmas that it was this real light and airy. Because now it's like sometimes when I read the news during the Christmas season, I will often just think this cat has got to be made up. People don't steal things during Christmas. People don't kill people during Christmas. Isn't everybody just nice and fairy-like and elf-like for at least a month? See, we can get caught up so much in the music and the tinsel and the fake snow and the weather and the, you know, the music and the gifts and all these sorts of things and place that modern reality on the first Christmas. Brothers and sisters, the first Christmas is a story that you should read with grief. Joy in the midst of it, but nonetheless, grief. We're talking about the people of God being enslaved. 
We're talking about the people of God living in mass poverty. We were talking about a crazy king called King Herod. And if you have not taken any time to study King Herod, this man was nuts. And that's putting it Christian. This man was crazy. He got wind that there's a baby that's going to be born. And this grown crazy man then sends out a decree that all the firstborn males, that babies, are, are going to be slaughtered. We have several of our families who are pregnant. Think of the heirs. New little baby. And imagine an armed guard coming into your house, Trevor. Now, he, he, he wish he hadn't come to your house. But... Busting down your door and taking your baby and killing it because your crazy ruler is scared of your kid. The first Christmas is a dark, dark time. And notice that, that when Jesus comes, our blessed hope it did not take away the darkness. You ever notice that? He didn't take it away. Now, we know that He's the light in the midst of the darkness. And He begins to push back the darkness. But when Jesus comes as a baby, and even as He lives for 33 years on this planet, guess what His people did? They still were in bondage. They were still hungry. They were still under the oppression of the Romans. They were still on the oppression of this kind of religious elite. Is the darkness being pressed back? Yes. I mean, haven't you ever wondered after you become saved, why didn't Jesus just suck me up to heaven? Why has He left us here for thousands of years now? When we're prone to wander. When we're prone to crave the darkness. See, when we look at our world, the reality for all of us is that the Christmas season is, again, for many of us, the most wonderful time of the year. But it is also a season where that is surrounded by darkness and there's probably more wrestling, fighting for your affections during this season than any other season inside of the year. And yet... Jesus comes. Jesus, the blessed hope, the hope of God incarnated into a person. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is not just that, that we can trust this word. It's not that we can just have hope because a book tells us. But no, we can have hope because God came in a God-man. God came. He came to this earth. He lived. He dwelled. He showed us not just some literature, but He showed us He wanted to be in relationship with us, even in the midst of your darkness. We hear all the time that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the thing is, it's more circular than anything. There have been worse times than our current time in history. I just want you to know that. Okay? But Let's be honest, but this is where we are. And so it's not the slight what we're going through. It is real. It is dark. When ISIS can go into Egypt and kill, what, 200 people? Or just right up the road in Cleveland, Tennessee, when a man can drive by with an automatic weapon or something and, and kill like six people in the last 48 hours, one of those being a small child. Or the youth pastor, a youth pastor at a Lutheran church here this week who, who is in a, no one had that idea, clue that this was going on. He was the 
Standing up front, youth pastor, a middle-aged guy, but him and his wife are in trouble. So he comes home on Thanksgiving, and while they're sitting around at the table, he kills his daughter, he kills his wife, and he kills his daughter's boyfriend. All in the news this week. This is where we are. And it's dark. But God is no less God. And what God is wanting to teach us is, is that worldly hope, guess what? You will lose it. But that there can be a biblical hope and a biblical understanding. Charles Spurgeon once said this, hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. See, God is going to reveal to you Himself more in the darkness times of your life than when everything seems to be going really, really well. And so I commend you, I encourage you to endure, brothers and sisters, to live this life of hope and trust. Trust God because He cannot lie. And He says, this is who I am. I am hope. He has illustrated that to us, that He keeps telling you, hey, this is going to happen. Noah, it's going to rain. And guess what, brothers and sisters? It reigns. Whenever God says something, it does take place. A Messiah is coming. And what has happened? The Messiah has come. Let us not become weary in our eagerly waiting us on the return of Jesus, but may we be faithful to hold to who God is because God not only says this who He is, He not only decrees that these things are going to happen, but He came Himself. His name is Jesus, and in the darkest of your days, God says, you can be certain, if you are in me, that I got you. And everything is going to be okay. And I love you. I love this church. And we are all prone to misplaced hope, aren't we? We are all prone to even losing our hope. We are prone to, to place our hope into other things other than God. We are easily disappointed. How many of you have ever gotten so worked up for something on this earth to only experience it and go, well, I did that. I think about this when I think about single people. I want you to know, single people, marriage can be awesome. But it is not like what you think it is. Right? You get so worked up into having this. Man, you get so worked up into having kids and then you have them. Like, what do we do to ourselves? We can, you can get so worked up into watching a movie. I, I like cinema. And so you can get so worked up into wanting to read a certain book that you've heard about or, or wanting to watch a certain movie. And then you go to it, and it's what? It's a letdown. It's a disappointment. We can disappoint each other. We, can, we are prone to this. And I think oftentimes our temptation is that one day we're going to get really bored in heaven. And I want you to know, it is going to be far more epic to be in the presence of our God than anything that we could ever imagine. As a person who is prone to boredom easily, I want to encourage you as we read and as we study God's Word, we can know that men, everlasting after everlasting after everlasting being in the presence of God. I want you to know, for fellow, you know, you're part of the club, you're easily bored like I am, there is coming a day when we're going to go. All this other stuff that we had worldly hope in is rubbish compared to being in this moment with God right now. Listen to me in closing. 
I love that passage inside of Hebrews where it says that we have a sure anchor. That we have a sure anchor. Wrangling. Lasso. I love that passage inside of the book of Hebrews when he says that we have a sure anchor. I've been on several boats inside of my life. I grew up going to the lake almost every weekend. I've, I've been on, in Kentucky Lake. If you've ever been to Kentucky Lake, it's known for just these tremendous waves. I was on a boat one time with my dad, and we were uh, crappie and bass fishing, and a terrible storm blew up. And, and literally, we were on a lake, and yet it was white capping into his boat. We're out in the middle of the lake. I've been on several situations where, man, you're just hoping that that anchor holds to the tether that is tied to the, that bottom, that it is not going to go anywhere, that your life somewhat depends on this anchor holding. And yet, the book of Hebrews reminds us, brothers and sisters, that no matter how high the waves get in your life, no matter how much the wind blows, no matter how much darkness, how much rain is falling upon your life to where you can't even seem to get a breath, if you've ever almost drowned before, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you are using all of your energy to get yourself just a, a minute ounce above the waterline so that you can get a breath. And for some of you, as one of your pastors, I know that that's how you feel right now. And yet the Bible tells us, I'm going to ask you to cling to something that you cannot see right now, but that you can know for certain, and that is that Jesus is your sure anchor of hope. When your teenager is, is wrestling with their identity, I want you to know that the anchor holds. That when you turn on the news, that the anchor holds. That when your 401k plummets, the anchor holds. That when you're lonely, wrestling in your singleness, that the anchor holds. That when you have been overlooked, maybe at your job, that the anchor holds. That when your marriage is secretly falling apart, that the anchor holds. That when your children are going wayward, that the anchor holds. That when your money doesn't seem to stretch far enough, that the anchor holds. That when you walk into the doctor's office thinking that you're just there for a normal checkup, and they tell you that you've got stage 4 cancer and months to live, May we be a church that realizes that the anchor holds. When you have a miscarriage, know this morning that the anchor holds. When you have lost your job, when you have been abused, when your addictions haunt you, and they're beckoning you to come back to them, when you fall deeply into sin when you just feel that all around you is sinking sand and darkness and depravity and lostness. And when it appears as though God has gone silent in the midst of your darkness, may you know this morning May you have assurance in what you cannot even see. May you not live in uncertainty, but may you be certain that even in the midst of those things, that your sure anchor holds. His name is Jesus we have hope because for the believer, our hope is not determined by our current circumstances. But our hope is personified in Jesus. He is our blessed hope. Hope is not a theory. Hope is not a man. Hope is a God-man. God is hope. He has an infinite supply of hope that He lavishly pours out upon His people. And He can do so again because He is hope. We must fight for this biblical hope in our lives. We must fight the drift toward misplaced hope or the loss of hope. 
We must live in that awkward in-between. From knowing what Jesus has done upon the cross and trusting a promise that He is going to come again. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not built on us having the ability to create something or to do something within ourselves. The message of the Gospel. God is the Gospel. And the message of the Gospel is not do this and get that. No, the message of the Gospel is not work your way, work harder. No, the message of the Gospel is look to Christ. God. He is the good news. He is the hope. It is not in what you and I must do. The message is what Jesus has done. And so our future can be certain. Not because of of this often kind of bipolar Christianity that you and I are experiencing in our awkwardness. Now our future can be certain because He has promised. He has came. He has died. It is finished. He is resurrected and He will return. God comes and God does it. And God will return again. May you trust that, brother. May you trust that, sister, in the midst of your darkest of night. May you cling to God, because God is your sure anchor. Let's pray.